Great. Uh, good evening. It is really good to be here tonight and uh, get the chance to open up God's Word with you guys. I wish I could have been here this morning. I um, Is it Peter who preached this morning? Okay, he's a good friend of mine. I had some people visiting at my other church under um, different circumstances. I really would have liked to have been here, especially just to meet you guys and talk with you this morning before coming tonight. So I apologize for that, but I'm, I am really excited to be here. I want you to know... Oh, I need to turn this on. And, uh, you know, I want you to know I, I take this just as a privilege, as a great opportunity. And uh, it's just, especially as I'm someone who's going through ministry, to be at this point, to get a chance to come out, um, speak with some brothers in Christ, open up God's Word, it's, it's really awesome. Um, I did, actually, I have been to this church before, not on a Sunday morning, but uh, during the summer, I was part of an internship uh, down at Inner City Baptist Church, and we came out for a week to this church and helped you guys. I was on the team that helped with the, um, whatever we're going to call it, the carnival family thing. So I've been here before, and uh, I think gotten to see probably some of you there, and that was really, that was actually fun during the summer too. Um, so, um, the sermon tonight is going to be from 1 Timothy 3. You guys can open up to 1 Timothy 3. The uh, main text that I'm going to be talking about is cha- uh, verses 14 through 16 of chapter 3. But I'm going to go ahead and read <clears throat> starting in verse 8 just to get some context. Um, I think you guys will be very familiar with maybe verse 8, probably uh, not as much familiar with verse 14 through, through 16. But uh, it's really been a blessing to me recently. So, let's read in verse 8. Deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also first be tested. Then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. So, as we look at verse 14, and you guys may recognize the qualifications for deacons, right? We're not going to teach on that morning, but just give some context. As we look at verse 14, it says, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you for long, but in case I am delayed, in verse 15... I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. And uh, anytime someone's writing a message and they have a specific burden to communicate to the people they're writing to, it's good maybe to recognize those statements in, in the text that say the purpose for writing. Um, that maybe gets us, uh, helps us take a look at, at why, uh, why he's writing these things. And in this case, He writes uh, about the qualifications for deacons, about this whole letter up to this point has been about the church, um, about how people should conduct themselves in the church or behave in the church. Another 
translation, I think the NIV says, I'm writing these things so you'll know how you should behave, but uh, either way, conduct yourselves or behave, it's similar. And, and as I begin to think about that phrase, uh, to conduct yourselves in church or behave yourselves in church, I thought of something my dad would used to say to me way back in the day as we would go to church as a family, and I was just a young kid. Um, he would have, it wasn't just in church, but at a especially important times, he would say to the kids, he would say, um, be on your best behavior. I don't know if anybody else has said that to your kids or, you know, or had that said by a parent to you, right? But it may have been in a situation like we've got company coming over for dinner, like the boss is coming over for dinner, you know, be on your best behavior. Or, um, you know, I'm going to be gone for the evening, you're going to be with your mom, but you should be on your best behavior. And um, we were always supposed to obey our dad or, you know, our parents, and we were always supposed to do the right thing. But that little phrase let us know that this was especially important, right? That uh, the stakes were especially high, that we, it, it we needed, because as little kids don't always know exactly the right time to behave or to conduct themselves well, we need maybe a little reminder from dad that this is especially important. And church was one of those times that we were supposed to be on your best behavior, right? And we'd get dressed up and go. And even when we didn't understand, even when we were too young to understand, we certainly understood that we were supposed to behave well there. And um, for the people in here, I would imagine that we all think of the church that way, as somewhere we're supposed to be on our best behavior, behave well, right? It's, it's kind of important. Um, church is one of those important places. And we, it's, kind of even ironic how sometimes before we're even too young to understand the significance of church, we know at least that it's supposed to be important. But at the same time, we know church is important and we, we have a general indication that this is a special time. I would imagine, I know it's true in my own life sometimes, and it might be true for some of you too, that uh, even though you have that general sense of importance and value in church, you come to church maybe not experiencing that on a weekly basis. There's just other distractions out there in our life, things that seem much more valuable and important than church. And just like those young kids who may not grasp the whole significance, maybe sometimes we come and we're just going through the routine. We're going through the motions. Of course, we wouldn't deny that church is important, but we've kind of lost touch with that importance. We uh, go on without really understanding what we're doing. Um, and I want to, uh, to acknowledge that as a reality, uh, first off, and say that maybe that's our, our attitude more than we'd like to think. And I come, came across this quote by Mark Twain that maybe he was a skeptic of the church, although he was famous for writing, um, you know, uh, Tom Sawyer. He was, when it came to religion, he was very skeptical, and he wrote this idea about the idea of heaven and church services that were notorious for being long and boring. He said, uh, Singing hymns and waving palm branches through all eternity is pretty when you hear about it in the pulpit, but it's as poor a way to put in valuable time as, as, a, as anybody could contrive. And uh, maybe, maybe that's, even though we know church is important, maybe that's how some of you guys are possibly feeling as you come week in and week out to church or think about the significance of church. Um, well, I want you guys, as we look into this passage, Paul does have an agenda. He has an agenda to share how to behave, how to conduct yourself in the church. And not only that, but to give his readers a sense of that importance, a sense of that value 
um, not just to describe how the, uh, he writes, he's been writing how, the ch- how people are supposed to behave in church and around the church and as part of the church up until this point. And then he uses these few verses um, as a way to describe what the church is, to bring back, to maybe light that fire in people as, as why, what we are as the church, who we are, why it's so important. And I'm just going to tell you that the theme tonight, as we get into it, is going to be that, the value of church, who we are, what we do, and this theme in uh, a couple of relations, a few relations that will come up in this passage. So, let's get into it here. Um... When we come across that word behavior, first off, as I, I want to deal with that, because it may strike us as something boring, all oh, behavior. Um, I thought of maybe a policy manual or a regulation manual or a computer manual or something like that when we hear that word behavior. Um, and sometimes that's how church feels to us, you know, uh, as we come to church and we, we think about how to behave, it's just policy, you know, page after page of policies, things to remember, things to do. Um, we think about a computer manual, something that nobody reads, right? But there's just pages of things and, um, you know, a church manual that has, you know, paragraphs and sections and subsections and about every little thing that goes on. And, and some people actually indeed look at church that way. We might think of the Catholic Church. They recite the way they recite uh, the Lord's Prayer or their Hail Marys or things like that. And um, that might be something that we bring with us into church. We just, we, although we wouldn't write, just go to the priest and recite our Hail Marys, we may take that attitude. Also, when we hear that word behavior, we might think of rules of etiquette, like how to, uh, I'm not a fan of tea parties myself, but um, you think of uh, fancy dinner parties, right? And having tea and finger sandwiches and the kind of rules of etiquette that you'd come to, maybe uh, you think of church that way. And... Um, not to bash tea parties, anyone out there likes tea, but maybe some, a fancy situation like that could also seem detached and distant and just for people that are really concerned with being fancy. Um, but church is so much more than that. And as we look at that word behave, right, because we're looking at that word behave or conduct yourself that's in verse 15 there, we see that that's not just the behavior in the sense that it's... Um, specific rules, little fancy rules to follow, or like a policy manual. It's much more than that. Actually, uh, one, one uh, author who I read uh, likened that word to describing a whole conduct or manner of life. It's not just little rules that we, we pay attention to at a certain time, like if we were at a, at a tea party or in church just for like one hour at a time while we're trying to be fancy or um, trying to just play by some specific set of rules just for a short amount of time, but it's actually, it goes beyond the walls of here and now, of, of where we are just at church, and it, it kind of gets into the nitty-gritty of our lives, and it should follow us. It's a whole manner of life. And actually, as we look back over those qualifications for deacons, right, that's specifically for deacons, but you'll notice all those, all those behaviors, those were character qualities. Um, deacons must be Digni- uh, let's see, dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to wine or greedy. These things are that have to do with their whole manner of life. The stakes are higher than just, um, I guess, one hour a week at church, or in your case, one or two or three hours a week at church, right? The behavior in the church is something that sh- 
should should be we should be taking with us throughout our entire week. Also, when we see him describe the church here, he says in verse 15 how one ought to conduct himself in the in uh, he doesn't say the word church. He says in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. That word household of God actually. Um, we tend to might think of it right away as just the building, the household of God, but there is actually evidence um, just throughout the New Testament that the household of God often refers to the people in the church. Once again, extending beyond just our one-hour meeting time a week or just our specific time carved out to be in these walls, but as the house, we, aren't, we don't just meet in the household of God, we are the household of God, and our character uh, should should reflect being the household of God throughout our week. So already there in the statement, um, we might find some evidence that church is more important, more valuable, and our conduct, our behavior, more valuable than we would first think. And there's going to be, uh, as we look over these verses here, there's going to be three relations that I want to zero in on as for uh, what the church is and why that makes our conduct valuable. The first one is uh, the church and the truth. Secondly, the church and Jesus Christ. And finally, the church and godliness, the idea of godliness. So firstly, the church and the truth. So we continue to read on. It says, um, we'll know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. It's interesting that he would you know, characterize the church that way. He would say, relate the church to the truth. Um, characterizing uh, truth that specific way as the truth kind of should bring us our attention to the fact that Christianity is about is not just about a random assortment of truths, but one truth, one whole body of truth in particular that Paul in this letter and we as as people of the church today should be concerned to preserve and protect. There is a truth the truth that's delivered right from, from Jesus to and the apostles um, th- to the church which continues throughout today. And we can see specifically the crisis that was coming in this church because people were attacking that truth. It's one of the central concerns of the letter to address false teachers who are coming in and kind of making a muck teaching other doctrines that weren't part of that truth that was delivered as part of the core of Christianity. In 1 Timothy 1.3, I'll go ahead and read that for you. Uh, you can turn just back a page if you want to read along with me. Uh, Paul says, As I urge you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines right, or teachings, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. So, false teaching, strange myths were coming in, right? 1 Timothy 1, 10-11 continues, And whatever else uh, is contrary to sound teaching, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. There's an indo- uh, idea running throughout the letter of a trust, a stewardship that's been given to the church, to Christians, to hold on to that teaching as valuable, as important, and to not let anything else just come in and be a part of it. Not any other teaching, just 
blend into the mix along with the core of Christian, uh, Christian teaching. This core can't be changed. And actually, I think that's really interesting, especially because I've heard a theory, um, and you guys may have heard the theory too, that's becoming increasingly popular on the History Channel and um, you know these books that are getting out there by scholars, that Christianity, there's really nothing miraculous about it. It just happened to be kind of a blend of teaching in its day that was kind of the perfect storm. It took things from Jewish religion and it took things from Greek religion and there was just a crossroads at the time and it just happened to evolve and kind of take shape along with Jesus and these other guys and each added their own to the mix and it was a big melting pot and it was evolving, right? The truth wasn't anything special that came from God. It just happened to be whatever the culture, the different cultures at the time contributed to it. I know I've heard that myself. I've heard it from... Um, just even popular conversations, you know, besides just the watching History Channel and things like that. And it's worth note, we, we may even ourselves find ourselves tempted by that, confronting that theory, right? How do we confront that? Well, First Timothy is a great way to confront that. It's actually throughout the letter, Paul is so concerned with uh, just um, not letting in these ideas, these other doctrines, which actually were much more agreeable to the culture at the time and were much more palatable for the people at the time than the truths of Christianity were. And there was a danger of losing the truths of Christianity, but Paul doesn't say... Uh, he could have easily said, oh, you know what? Um, you guys have some great stuff to offer us. You've got some really good teaching. There's people following you. Why don't you come in, kind of make your teaching a part of ours? It'll be great. We'll kind of continue evolving. Jesus... He kind of got the ball rolling, but, you know, we're still making it our own. We're making it ours. You can have kind of a part in that. He doesn't take that attitude. He, he wants to protect the church um, from those myths, right? And we can also look at, uh, for instance, another, another instance of this happening within the church I, I thought of that's even more popular or more recognizable is 1 Corinthians 15. You guys recognize there that the resurrection, right, was being denied by people and uh, because it, it was distasteful or the, res, the idea of resurrection wasn't but the idea that it was possible it could happen people that was a foolish concept but Paul says no we, there is no Christianity without res, the resurrection that the body of, there is no Christianity without that body of truth you can't sacrifice those things and continue to be um, practicing Christians well, in First Timothy, the teaching that was entering was kind of the idea that people could achieve a higher, and this is just trying to reconstruct it based on what we have available to us, so I can't get a, a very precise picture of what they're teaching, but there's good indication that people were trying to achieve a higher level of spirituality by forbidding to marry, by following extra set of rules, by... Um, abstaining from certain foods by disciplining their bodies harshly, right? If you look at 1 Timothy 4 with me, um, you can see evidence of that. I'll go ahead and read just to get an idea of the context here. 1 Timothy 4, 3 and 4. Um, Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in in by those who believe and know the, know the truth. There's that word, the truth, coming up again. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected as received with gratitude. That idea that you could obtain 
a, a greater spirituality or favor with God through disciplining your body by staying away from certain foods or not marrying by following these extra rules was more popular in Greek philosophy and religion and things like that at the time. It was more marketable, right? People actually weren't lining up to hear that, uh, you know, in the Greek culture, that a Jewish man died for them and forgave their sins and is going to rise again. That wasn't a marketable idea. It wasn't, um, wasn't something that was... Only after the church started to, pr- to spread would people have realized that such an idea could catch on, right? But something like this, oh, add this discipline to your life and it'll bring you a greater degree of happiness or greater favor with God. That was much more palatable, marketable at the time. And um, when we today come to the truths of the Bible, we might be tempted in a similar way that these people were tempted to give up those hard truths of Christianity that are difficult to accept and to accept, exchange them for things that are much easier culturally to fit in and to blend and to hold on to. And as we consider that, I, I also want to recognize here, in first, going back to our passage, 1 Timothy uh, 3, verse um, 15, He calls the church the church of the living God. The living God. And that title, I think, is is powerful when connected to the idea of the truth as well. When we consider that that specific title for God, of course God is from the beginning one who is alive. That's that's something, a character, uh, a quality about Him that's made known from the very beginning, from Genesis. But a lot of times I discovered in preparing for this that in the Old Testament when that phrase, the living God, is used, it's a lot of times used when people um, outside of the nation of Israel were attacking Israel's God. Think of, for instance, uh, the book of Daniel, um, Daniel 6.20. You guys don't have to turn there. But, uh, you know, the Babylon was attacking Israel's God and, and Daniel uh, calls his God the living God, right? And in response to the false idols that uh, these other nations were worshiping and putting investing in, right? Uh, Isaiah also, the Isaiah 37, right after a big uh, chapter there in Isaiah 34 when there's, um, or, well, right around Isaiah 45 actually it is, where, where um, God attacks false idols. He's called the living God. Um, there's other instances of that too with David and um, the surrounding nations back in his time. But the idea of the living God, the church of the living God, it, it communicates that God is alive. He's in, in uh, contrast to any kind of God that we might want to make from the culture, from ideas that are out there and kind of sh- uh, craft and shape and fashion to what we would like God to be like. The living God doesn't bow to our wishes. He's alive. He uh, is in control. He's the authority. We're accountable to Him, right? And He is the real, the actual God, the living one. That idea of truth is just such a powerful idea um, connected to our identity as the church. That the living God is indeed the God that we are worshiping here tonight. Um, That He has a body of truth that we need to accept and preserve and to protect. 
And as we think about application, um, I, I tried to actually, I got this idea from another source. I, I, it didn't originate with me, and I tried to find where I got it from, and uh, you guys have to forgive me. But it's the idea that a lot of people today, they want to keep God in their back pocket. In other words, they want to keep Him small, manageable, um, easily manipulated. They want to take Him out when they need Him, um, keep Him in their hand, maybe possibly discuss God in such a way that it's easy, can take what they want, leave what they want, and that's where God stays, right in their pocket. Um, and that, even as individuals, as a church together and as individuals, so easy to do when we have discussion, when we encounter truth, when we encounter sermons or, or truth in the Bible. We can reject and accept truth based on what we want, keeping God in our back pocket, keeping that body of truth, right? We can keep that in our, in our, in our pocket as well, easily manipulated, take what we want, leave what we want. But in contrast to that, Paul describes the church as the pillar and support of the truth. What a contrasting image to maybe that small, easily manipulated God. Um, take what you want, leave what you want view of truth that a lot of people have. And it's so easy to kind of ha- uh, have ourselves, even in the church. As a pillar in support, we need to recognize the truth that God has handed to us, right? And protect it, preserve it, hold it up. What a contrast to how many people view the truth, the religious truth that they have, right? Um, Truth is unmanipulated, untouched by our wills and desires. And we really, we need to take that, that idea of pillar and support with us in how we live our lives and how we view uh, really our main task here at church, uh, whether we're the ones who are uh, communicating truth or just coming into contact with truth in, in the Word or on a, on a Sunday morning in a number of different ways in the church. So, there's our first relation, uh, relationship, the church's relationship to truth, that it should inspire value and worth into who we are as a church. Um, moving on now, I want to focus on this, uh, in the Pew Bible, this little hymn down here, it's, it's separated into six lines. If you have, if you have your own Bible, uh, most versions, I think, in verse 16 right after the word godliness, it says, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. They have, He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Uh, in most of your Bibles, you'll, you'll probably notice that those are separated into six lines. or maybe in, It's like a stanza that's brought out from the main text. Um, that's because many people, as they come across this, they've seen, and we can see for ourselves, even just reading it, if it's in paragraph form, that there seems to be a lot of intention put into uh, to writing those lines like we would a hymn. And there's a, there's a theory, the, the theory is that like, it was likely that this was originally some kind of a hymn or creed. It was deliberately put together, um, probably um, with a lot of thought and effort, to summarize some of those central truths of the faith that Paul has been talking about. He talks about how important the truth is. It's, we're supposed to be in pillar and support of it. 
Now he goes on to list, just just summarize maybe a few of those things in this well-known uh, confession or hymn or creed. And um, we're not going to, because of the nature of it, right, we could talk about each individual line. Um, for instance, take line one. He was re- revealed in the flesh. You guys are familiar that um, that doctrine, uh, there's a doctrine right right there communicated in line one, the incarnation that Jesus took on flesh. We could talk about that more. We could talk about each individual line. But I want to focus tonight on kind of the hymn as a whole and what it communicates about the person of Jesus and not uh, go through each of the individual details. So if you are the kind of person who likes maybe taking uh, content from a sermon and taking a little bit of homework away or maybe coming back to a passage later in the week and reading it and thinking and meditating on it, I would say just like you would maybe a hymn like Oh Great God or In Christ Alone, maybe come back to this. And uh, and I'm just going to throw that out there if anybody wants to take some homework away um, to to think about it more, especially because there's such rich uh, language just like in our hymn, think about in Christ alone, the, the lines, no guilt in life, no fear in death, um, kind of that poetic contrast there between life and death, or the O oh Great God that we just sang, um, O oh Great God of highest heaven, occupy my lowly heart, right? There's really, it's really kind of a beautiful section of Scripture, and I, since we're not going to get to look at every single line, I would throw that out there for you guys to look at it more. But, we notice here the most obvious thing, looking at the hymn as a whole, the most obvious, obvious subject matter of that hymn is the person of Jesus. Every single line is about Jesus Christ. Some aspect of his character, his identity, his mission, right? something connected to him. Um, and it's interesting when faced with kind of this crisis, in, in the Ephesian church, he's writing to Tim, uh, Paul's writing to Timothy to preserve the truth, to protect it. He could write a number of, uh, right here at the heart of the letter, when he's talking about why he wrote, he could write a number of different truths, but he focuses on the person of Jesus and all these aspects about him. Um, these truths about Jesus are some of the precious truths of Christianity, the core truths. And even though not every single element of the, the gospel, as we would think of it, right, is there in this, in these six lines, we can see that Paul is easily summarizing kind of the whole gospel story in a, in a few short lines for us. So we can think about all at once we have that, this hymn hit us, just like with many of our hymns that we sing in church. Um, uh, we hear a few truths and the entire significance of that gospel story, right? We should, we should, we, uh, can then reflect on it and have the response of worship. I think that's what's happening. That's the intended response that Paul's trying to create here, um, that we think about who the person of Jesus is. And the fact that our faith and the truths of the faith so largely um, are, are bound to a person, who this person is who lived 2,000 years ago. And that's interesting to me because when you ask a lot of people today, Wow, what does Christianity mean to you? Or what's your Christianity? What's Christianity all about? Maybe a lot of people uh, would say, oh, well, you know, I try to do good things to my neighbor. You know, I, um, I try to really feel special when I, when I give to people, right? They try to take maybe a few things of Jesus' teaching 
maybe if they're familiar with Christianity or just just some general moral principles and, and say, that's what Christianity is really, right? It's just do unto others what you'd have them to do unto you. It's just trying to do your best. And although Jesus has a lot of teachings about, for instance, the golden rule, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you, Christianity starts with, before there's uh, truths about how we need to act and how we must act, Christianity is at its core truths about the person of Jesus. Not about what we do and about our ability to do, but what Jesus has accomplished for us. These lines are uh, really a beautiful representation of, of Christ's whole mission. If you look at him, it starts with how he came down to earth. He was revealed in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, um, seen by angels, claimed among the nations, believed on the world, taken him to glory. There's kind of a progression there of his coming, his mission, uh, in action, being accomplished, and then the ongoing effects of that mission, right, and the results of it. Even uh, as the for the church, as they would reckon themselves to even be a part of that mission, they're hearing and believing, right? As we see the, the phrase, believed on in the world, proclaimed among the nations. And we can recognize that we are even part of that ongoing mission. That Jesus began, he accomplished redemption, and now the message is spreading. Churches, 2,000 years later, churches are still spreading that message that began to spread back in this time. And that's just, hopefully, hopefully as we think about that, it should be incredibly significant uh, for us. It should just light a fire, like I said, (laughs) under our view of church and and who we are and what we do. You know, we're here because, you know, throughout the last 2,000 years, churches have existed and continued to proclaim this message. I hope that strikes us as, as something awesome. Also, as we try to look at the, the, uh, the, this hymn as a whole, you can notice something else significant about it. Um, we look at the, 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 uh, the verbs there in each of the lines. Each of the lines are parallel in some way. We see that uh, we have in the first line, it's revealed. The second line, vindicated, or your translation might say justified there, but seen, proclaimed, believed, taken. Um, by and large, those verbs uh, have some kind of an idea of being made known, right? Jesus was revealed. He came to earth to be revealed, to be made known. And his, uh, the idea of, of vindicated, right, is justified, vindicated. Um, it's a kind of a complicated line, but I think the idea is, I would make the case that the idea there is that Jesus lived a perfect life through the power of the Holy Spirit, right? And that was his vindication, his uh, righteousness. It was lived out by him for, it, for all to see. This idea of that it was made known, it was, it was in front of all to see. Of course, we have seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on. The fact that um, Jesus is the one who we are supposed to see, to believe, to make known. Uh, rather than just the idea, the common idea of religion that we might hear just from our culture, that religion is supposed to be privatized, an inward experience, um, something that you wouldn't really discuss with other people, something that makes resonates maybe inwardly with you, but certainly not something that 
that's just arrogant <laughs> to proclaim it to other people, right? To have it revealed for all to see. But, uh, but it's actually our, our salvation. Not only can we not, is Christianity not about us be, having the ability to save ourselves, but uh, we, we, it's not about our, our ability to resonate with certain truths or to come up with the truth ourselves, right? It had to be made known to us. And there's incredible grace in that too. That uh, the true Christianity, the truths of Christianity are enacted for us by Jesus Christ, by His power, and made known to us apart from us. We had to receive those truths and believe on them apart from our own ability to discover truth, right? Or to experience truth on our own. So, as we, again, trying to connect everything to the value of the church. Um, we might easily think that the ch- sermons at church seem um, boring. Maybe we're familiar with the life of Jesus. We're familiar with who He is, right? That He came and died on a cross. We hear those truths day in and day out. They might slowly begin to slip away from, from us from us realizing their true importance. And we might, over a period of time, begin to make ourselves vulnerable to thinking, I mean, I already know who Jesus is. I already know some of these truths of Christianity, what it's all about. And we might become more vulnerable to those truths out there in the marketplace, right? In our culture that are much, that are alluring and that we aren't as familiar with and that seem to promise kind of the next big thing, right? And, of course, uh, one example of that that's incredible, uh, I guess, from a biblical perspective, is especially, uh, its wrongness is especially apparent, is um, Joel Osteen's Your Best Life Now, right? The fact that uh, there's ideas out there on the market that, you know, it's not really about the person. He, even within, he's within suppo- supposedly the sphere of Christianity, right? But he's marketing ideas that it's not really about the person of Jesus. It's all about your best life, what you can do, remarkably similar to what these false teachers were kind of peddling, right? That there's a higher life for you now. Um, of course, now it's, uh, it's not so much marketed as through asceticism and discipline and stuff like that, but, but still, there's ideas out there that we can be vulnerable to that our higher life is, is about achieve, us achieving happiness and, and we can tend to push aside who Jesus is and not really focus too much on Him, lose track of the, the wonder and worship that we should have as, as the church in who this person Jesus is and what he has accomplished for us. Um, if we hear these truths every Sunday, hopefully they should still be bringing worship up in our hearts. And they, it shouldn't be a boring, um, unimportant thing. So real quickly here, my last point the shortest one and I'll finish up and these last couple minutes. But finally, uh, one more relationship that should instill value in us as the church is the church's relationship to godliness. And uh, we've already looked into the hymn here the, at the end of verse 16. I want to return to this little statement right at the top of verse 16. It says, By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. And this is perhaps maybe one of the hardest phrases in this section here that we've looked at tonight uh, because we don't talk like that. We wouldn't say great is the mystery of godliness. It seems uh, 
if we were going to maybe circle hard words in the passage that would need explanation, uh, we, would, we would circle mystery and godliness and maybe takes a little bit more effort to understand what Paul's saying here. So, the word mystery, first off, that can, that's one that we don't use very often. Um, at its core, it's a word that means something that has been hidden in the past, but now is revealed. Uh, in, in this sense, it's easy to see, at first, that might be a con- uh, an unfamiliar word, but if you think of it as something that was some bit of spiritual knowledge that was hidden in the past, but revealed... Uh, then it maybe becomes a little more clear why Paul would use this word, and actually throughout his letters he has he likes to use this word for really the brilliance of the gospel message that it was unknown by people in ages past, but now it has been made known to us. Um, and actually, we just looked at how the hymn that Jesus was made known, the message is made known, um, and also uh, I find the the use of the word mystery interesting because. These false teachers, they were their teaching, what they were selling was some kind of deeper, higher knowledge, some kind of mystery, that some, something that seemed like you wanted to attain it, some unattainable spiritual knowledge that, in, that uh, was apart from the gospel and uh, seemed more desirable. But the word mystery uh, should, uh, I think Paul used it specifically because the deeper, higher knowledge, the way to continuing deeper in the Christian life is not necessarily um, discovering some other teachings out there apart from who Jesus is, but it's actually becoming more familiar with the gospel message and applying that more deeply in our lives. Um, And specifically, the word godliness as well, the mystery of godliness. Uh, godliness is a favorite term used by Paul throughout this this letter to frame the activities and goals and actions of the Christian life. First um, Timothy two two says that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Um, uh, let's see, First Timothy four seven as well says have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales, rather train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Um, I'm still reading in First Timothy 4. That is why we labor and strive, uh, because we have put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all people, uh, and especially of those who believe. Right? Godliness is a unique way to frame the activities and goals of the Christian life that should draw our attention to the fact that um, really the end game in increasing in spirituality in Christianity is becoming, is developing those character qualities that are more like God, that are godly. And specifically, the example we have set for us in Jesus Christ. And this becomes especially powerful when we consider that the false teachers were just kind of heaping disciplinary practices on themselves just for their own sake, right? If it, if it hurts and it's painful, if it's uh, abstaining from marriage or abstaining from certain foods, then that must be good. That must be getting me somewhere, right? And Paul says, no, that's uh, just because, just because it's, it's something hard to do, like disciplining your body, doesn't mean it actually has value for the Christian life. 
what has value for the Christian life in, in our activities and how we, how we live is whether we're developing character qualities like God, whether we're developing godliness. And once again, as we think about the application, we could very easily be lured into believing that uh, in our Christian lives, in our churches, that we're making some kind of progress just by the simple fact that we are going through the routines, right? By the simple fact that we... And you, I want to be careful here because reading your Bible is a good thing and, uh, and something we need to work at the discipline of that, right? It does take labor and we, la- we do labor and strive at it, right? As Paul says in First Timothy 4, there's discipline involved, but if it's just doing it for the discipline then, and stopping short of developing godly character qualities in us like Jesus Christ, then we are ultimately cutting short of true, the true goal of our Christian lives individually and as the church. And I would like to challenge you guys. I know for me, that's, that's a particular struggle, right? I've, I put in my 15 minutes today of, of what, a Bible reading and prayer, right? Or I, uh, I just I showed up. I was part of the routine, right? And, and we want to be careful again because, because being here is good, but being here and developing, being self-consciously working to develop um, the attitudes, actions of Jesus Christ, the godly character within us, is, is maybe a significant way for us to think about the Christian life and our, and our identity as a church. So in conclusion, we all struggle to some degree with the, t- the tension, right, between knowing how we should behave and we should conduct ourselves as part of the church, and knowing that it's important, just like that kid whose dad tells him, be on your best behavior, and how we actually value the church really. Do we just, maybe we just see it as a routine. Maybe we just, we've lost track of, of really the true value. So this is a passage that we can turn to, that we can look to. Paul writes for us how to behave in the church, but it's much more than just uh, you know, an empty you know, policy manual, um, something that would grow dust on the bookshelf, right? Oh, it's, it's much more than just maybe the, the, the boredom that we can let fester and develop in us sometimes. It's actually a plea for the church to realize its own importance. The church is called to support the truth. There's a relationship there between the church and the truth. The church is called to know and to worship Jesus Christ. There's a vital relationship between the church, who we are, and our Savior, Jesus Christ, this person who lived and died for us. And then finally, the church is called to grow in godliness. There's a relationship between the church and the goal of becoming more godly, more uh, like Christ and developing those inner character qualities. So I hope you guys will, maybe when you're tempted to not see the importance, to not see the value, to think about those relationships, about who we are as a church. And uh, thank you so much. And I'll go ahead and uh, pray. Close us, and thank you again for this opportunity. Lord, I just pray that you would help us all see the value of your church, of what you've called us to be and to do, and to value you and your word and your truth. And I pray for everyone in this room. Um, 
as they go from here tonight, go through activities throughout their week, that they would carry with them the responsibility to be the church, to, to value you, and to value what you've called us to do. And we thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.